So many episode 1301, Grace Bonnie, author of the new book, Collective Wisdom, Lessons, Inspiration, and Advice from Women Over 50. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. When I interviewed, especially women over the age of 70 for this book, my naivete, I mean, smacked me right in the face immediately because I asked people, I led with the question, like, what did you want to be when you were little? Because I, I just like hearing about what people imagined. And for so many women, they looked at me like, what kind of question is that? Like, I didn't imagine anything because there were no options. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for gathering with me here. As we head into a new year, I want to be more intentional about something, and that is learning from those of us who have more life experience, all the life experience, uh, like way more than me. I came across a quote over the holiday week from award-winning editor Doug Morano, and he said, and he actually said this a couple of years ago, but for some reason uh, it has endured. And I know why, because it's brilliant. He said, I get tired of 40 under 40 lists. Show me someone who got their PhD at 60 after losing everything. Give me the 70-year-old debut novelist who writes from a lifetime of love and grief. Give me the calloused hands and tender hearts, end quote. I am happy to say that on the show, we have interviewed many people uh, who've either started over or changed directions later in life. And I'm putting later in quotes. It's not 35. You know, I'm talking like 50s, 60s. My dad, for example, who got laid off at 62 and rerouted his career after taking a bunch of free online courses and landed back on his feet. It took a while, but he did it. And then there was Janine Roth who came on the show. She and her husband, their entire life savings depleted uh, because of Bernie Madoff. And how did they rebuild and reconstruct their lives? I mean, this was like in their 50s. And then there was Annabelle Gerwich who joined to talk about dealing with financial loss, divorce and cancer, all with humor and humility in her 50s. These are the rich untold stories that need more of a stage. And so I'm pleased to invite our guest today on the show. She is Grace Bonnie, and she has a new book called Collective Wisdom, Lessons, Inspiration, and Advice from Women Over 50. In her book, she interviews women like Olympic athlete Gail Marquis, poet and author Julia Alvarez, Betty Reed Soskin, who at 100 years old is the oldest National Park Service ranger in the U.S., this is a book you want in your home in 2022 and for years to come. And you'll hear it soon, but Grace talks about what these women think about the future, where our country is headed. Are they hopeful? What do they credit for their own trailblazing success? And what money lessons did they learn or not learn? Now, more about Grace, you may recognize her. She is an author, blogger, and entrepreneur. She is most well-known for founding the interior design blog, Design Sponge, which she ran for 15 years. And her last book, In the Company of Women, hit the New York Times bestseller list. That book, one of my favorites, features more than 100 stories about women entrepreneurs who overcame adversity. Without further ado, here's Grace Bonney. Grace Bonnie, welcome to So Money and Happy New Year. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. 
The last time you were on the show, you did us the honor of being on the podcast when your first book, In the Company of Women, had just been released. And I was just telling the audience, it's one of my favorite coffee table books. It features stories of more than 100 women who work for themselves. This includes artists, writers, designers, chefs, musicians. Today, you have a new book called Collective Wisdom, Lessons, Inspiration, and Advice from Women Over 50. What inspired this particular collection of stories and your focus on women 50 and older? You know, it's it's twofold. The book was primarily inspired by a friendship I had uh, with a woman named Georgine that I met volunteering. And I was in my late 30s and Georgine uh, was in her late 80s. And we became friends pretty quickly. And it wasn't until I would say the last year of her life that we became like what I would call real friends. Like I went to her house and we talked about family and life and plants and cats. And that friendship really showed me how much I was missing by kind of separating myself from people based on age, which I don't think I even realized I was doing. And then when I started thinking about what other project I wanted to do, I thought how valuable it would be to have a book of Georgines of just people who had lived so much life and had so much perspective so I went about it just thinking about like, who are the Georgines of different communities and who are these people who have lived spectacular lives that aren't necessarily famous, but have lived lives full of resilience and just amazing moments. Now, there are two types of profiles that you selected for this book. There are the individual stories of women ages 50 and up, and then you have intergenerational group stories, which I found especially fascinating. I really cherish the friendships that I have with women who are 10 years older than me, 15 years older than me, the wisdom they have lent me over the years, absolutely priceless. I sometimes wonder though, if I'm as valuable to them as they are to me, is my wisdom at all interesting, helpful? You know, that's a question I really wanted to address with this book. And it's why, you know, 75% of the book is, are these individual profiles of women over 50. And then peppered throughout are these stories of intergenerational friendship, whether that's people who volunteer together, who are mentors, neighbors, matriarchy lines and families. And I wanted to do that because I really wanted to know whether or not it was a mutually beneficial situation. And it absolutely is. And I think it's very much a result of living in a really ageist culture that says, okay, older people are these like fonts of wisdom that sit on pedestals and we can take from them as younger people, but we have nothing to offer them. And I really internalized that. And I thought like, oh, well, why would I ever seek out a friendship with somebody in their seventies or eighties? What on earth do I have to add to the equation? But talking to all these women, it's, it's so clear that we have more to offer than just helping someone like program a computer or understand an app or something like there's really benefit in both sides of that coin and the perspective that youth and with experience offers. I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to narrow down the profiles, though. I mean, you probably started with <laughs> yeah. a large group of exceptionally talented, interesting, powerful women. How did you edit this? I would imagine so hard to do. Hmm. That's my favorite part of any process that I've ever done of any project. It's it's like a it's a collage, and you have to think about like whose story have we already told in the book, so we don't want to replicate the same story. Um, I want to make sure, as always, there's a a real and meaningful diversity of stories told, not just 
race, religion, age, but, you know, what has their life story been like? Have they had a lot of family support? Have they not had family support? Um, are, are they a part of a diaspora from a country that's not the United States? And so I really wanted to sit down and take that all into account. And that became a giant list of probably like 200 people. And then I reached out to people I respect in a wide range of communities to just say, who are the elders in your life that matter to you? And can I hear about them? And I listened to a lot of people talk about grandparents and neighbors, people from church, people from schools, and then just sat down with those people to say, like, would you want to be a part of this? And it was a really different thing for me to approach people who had no concept of what I do because they're not part of the creative community, or at least at least of the era that I am. And so it was mostly coordinated through grandchildren, friends from church, you know, like younger um connections in their community who were able to kind of bridge that gap and help me build a little bit of trust to start that interview process. Hmm. I'm curious, you know, if you, we went into the future, if you were assigned to this book 50 years from now, a hundred years from now, how might the stories you think of, of women ages 50 and older be, be different or the same? Do you think the struggles would be in some ways the same? Do you feel like these women have paved the way for it to be easier for the, the, our generation or the generation ahead of us? I think the diversity of stories in 50 years would be even more rich because when I interviewed, especially women over the age of 70 for this book, my naivete, I mean, smacked me right in the face immediately because I asked people, I led with the question, like, what did you want to be when you were little? Because I, I just like hearing about what people imagined. And for so many women, they looked at me like, what kind of question is that? Like, I didn't imagine anything because there were no options. I could be a mom. I could be a wife. I could maybe be a secretary, maybe, maybe, um, but that was it. And those options didn't exist. Like the idea of dreaming all di- types of different careers and options wasn't a thing. And so I imagine if you ask people in 50 years, you would get a generation of people, if you're talking about people from the US for the most part, who had the option to think about different careers, whether or not they wanted to be a parent, whether or not they wanted to be married, like all of these huge factors I think would be just a broader list of options. But I imagine there would be a lot more independence. Um, For a lot of the women in this book who are in their 80s, when I asked them to kind of look back and imagine if they would redo anything in their life if they could, almost everyone cited maybe not getting married because that really did limit, you know, of a certain era that limited people's possibilities of, you know, you had to stay home and raise three or four children. And it wasn't something you got to choose. It was just something that was done. And, you know, I think that those conditions are, they still exist in certain communities, but I think that those are getting better slowly over time. So that was a real eye opener for me is how I imagine possibility is very much shaped by the era that I grew up in. Yes. And it's no secret though, that patriarchy has endured yeah. uh, the patriarchy that these women experience, the women in your book, um, different than perhaps the kind of patriarchy that we have today, although it's very much um, in some ways a roadblock for women to succeed. How did that era of patriarchy play a role in their pursuits? It's fascinating because I think that the generation I'm coming from 
yes, patriarchy is a huge part of the discussion, but I even think just gender as a topic is a bigger part of the discussion for younger communities of like, does it even matter? Like, does feminism matter anymore if gender doesn't matter? Like, there's this whole like intersectional approach to that that just, that's not a conversation I was having with people who were in their 70s and 80s. And they were describing a type of patriarchy that most of us have not experienced yet where, you know, sometimes even just speaking up within a household was not allowed. And so, you know, that that was really eye-opening for me. And to hear that in so many different communities and so many different versions was really heartbreaking, but also amazing because so many of these women have discovered second, third, fourth careers in their 70s and 80s. And I think, you know, traditional media kind of ignores those stories, but it's wonderful and incredibly empowering to realize that not only does your night your life not end as you get older, but the possibilities get much richer. And I think your fear gets much smaller because you have lived life and survived a lot more things by then. I can't agree more. I was reading over the holidays a quote, and I, me- I mentioned this earlier before we um, introduced you, this, this famous quote out there that's circulating, you know, I'm tired of 40 under 40 lists. Show me the 70 year old who got a PhD after losing everything. You know, these are the stories of, of recovery, of rebuilding, of reimagining life. And doing it in, in, in a time when for many of us secretly, it's like when we're just getting started and we're not getting the attention that it deserves and needs so that we can inspire everybody else. I love it. All right, let's talk money. In your interviews, what were the big financial lessons that these women shared openly? So many of these women, when they were speaking about finances, acknowledged that they did not they did not not only have knowledge of their family's finances, but they didn't get access to their family's finances until their husbands passed away, until they, you know, were able to pursue something outside of the house and have their own separate account. And, you know, that's something that's very foreign to me. I know my like my parents have a joint account. My mom doesn't have a lot of information about what happens in that account. But I think that's that's really changing with younger generations. So that was really interesting to hear from women who were like, I would have loved to have known more and had more control over that. But again, that was not an option for me. Like I couldn't dream of going to a certain school or going back to school and saving up because I didn't even know how much money we had. And that was something you had to ask for. Again, reinforcing this patriarchal idea of like the husband had to give you permission to go do something. Um, and there and there are plenty of people who who did very differently, like Elaine Denniston, who used to work for NASA in the book. You know, she got up and walked over to Harvard um, back when it was separated by gender and there are two different schools and was like, I'd like to go. I would like to apply. And I'm here in person. And let me do this now. And by the time she got home, they had accepted her application and her husband said, like, Harvard called you can go (laughs) like this is happening. But she didn't ask her husband for permission. It was very much a like, I need to do this for me. I'm going to do this. And that's that was pretty rare for that time. So it was nice to find stories of that as well, because I think a lot of people did push back against that. That is an awesome story. That is such a good story. Now, as these women look to the future and, and they think about where the world's headed, Uh, Were they hopeful for us in terms of uh, our ability to choose a life for ourselves, by ourselves, at least here in the States? Almost everybody I spoke to, I think, felt overwhelmingly excited about what the future for younger people looked like. I think some people had very reasonable concerns about what climate change means for younger people and how that would affect everything. Um, And especially, you know, most of these interviews were done 
uh, in 2020. And so the political atmosphere was something that was top of mind. And I think a lot of people had concerns about the direction of the Supreme Court, the direction of the White House and what that meant for the rights of women. So that was that was something everyone was quite aware of, which I think is a misconception people have about older people in general. So they're like not paying attention to contemporary life. And that just could not be further from the truth. And people were very, very aware of what was going on. And that was a huge concern. But I think they were incredibly buoyed by the stories of younger women, not only the friendships they had with them and that part of the book, but people who just saw their children, their grandchildren, their great grandchildren going to school, getting married later, you know, choosing not to have kids, like all these different changes that just weren't options for them. And to see them pursuing their own interests and things they were passionate about, I think left a lot of those women feeling like things are different and they've been able to see that change in their lifetime. And I think the sense of hope was a lot more present um, in those older women than in the younger women. And so that was an interesting kind of divide. I was reading about your personal takeaways from these uh, reflections that you heard and that you put together for this book and that you walked away with a bit of a sobering takeaway, which is that things won't always be okay, but that's life and that's okay. That was kind of a universal. I went into this book thinking I would get some like nugget of universal wisdom that made me feel really hopeful. But instead, I came away with this really realistic sense of like, no, things will not always be okay. And that's okay. Like, it's okay. If, as long as you have a support system around you, and that was kind of the gist of the book was like, keep these women in your life close, like build a support system. You will be able to get to the things that inevitably happen. And I think it was Judy Human, who was this like iconic um, disability rights activist, who was the reason that we have... Um, so many of the disability rights laws on the books that we have now was saying like, you don't get to sleep on this. Like this happens every generation. Like there people are going to try to take your rights away. You have to stand up. You can't just rest on what other generations have done, like get involved and show up. And that was really helpful for me to hear because I think like I didn't grow up with parents who had to march or do anything like that. Not that they didn't have those options, but they didn't. And so I think a lot of us grew up like really privileged and really lucky to not have to actively demand rights. So hearing from women who have lived through the civil rights movement, disability rights movements, you know, all of these different intersectional identities, that was really a very powerful reminder of like, if Judy Human, who has lived through far more than I can imagine, can tell me like, you're not done. Like you have to show up. If I'm showing up, you need to show up. That was a really important reminder. And especially from someone who's older to say like, yeah, I'm not done. So you're definitely not done. I think this book really reminded me to slow the heck down and to be really aware of where I am right now and what's happening and to appreciate it. Because a lot of these women talked about really flying through certain eras of their life and wishing they could go back and just savor that a little bit more. And that's, that's honestly what kind of stuck with me was just really recognize where you are, how lucky you are, even if it's a tough time, like find the gratitude in something and appreciate what you've gotten through because we're all going to make decisions we wish we had done differently. And if we feel ashamed of those earlier selves, we don't really get to appreciate who we are today. So I think it's grounded me in a way that in the company didn't ground me. And you've embarked on a new career. You're, you've left the art and design world. You're in grad school now, studying to become a marriage and family therapist. Are you missing the old life at all? What inspired the change? No, not at all. Um, 
Design Sponge, I mean, grew out of a, a hobby and a passion. And I think in the process of doing that, I would say, because it was 15 years of blogging, I would say after 10 years, I there was a, a real like chemical switch in my body where I thought, I can't talk about another pillow or chair or house. I'm done. I don't, I, this doesn't mean what it used to mean to me 10 years ago. But what does mean something to me is interviewing people and to actually hear what their lives are like and how what their lives are like shapes what they make. And so I became far more interested in the people than the things. And that's what led to doing a podcast and then writing books that focused on people's personal lives. And I think in this, in the process of making collective wisdom, I had a number of conversations that felt therapeutic, like, we were talking about really scary stuff in a really scary time. And when you talk to somebody about grief and death and loss and what their life could have been if their options had been different, you know, it really reminded me that in those moments of one-on-one -on -one connection, that's where I'm actually the most fulfilled. So it kind of gave me that last little nudge I needed to take the leap and apply for school. So excited for you. I mean, you look at what you built with Design Sponge, someone looking at that thinking, oh, she's you know, reached the pinnacle of her design career and now transitioning to something uh, different and new and exciting is just so wonderful to watch. And an important reminder to all of us that you can be successful at many things. Was there a favorite decade that these women expressed over and over? I'm just curious. I'm in my 40s. Uh, does life just keep getting better with age or is there a specific, you know, period of time when uh, you you kind of hit your peak? You know, I think everyone had a different version of that answer, but universally, no one said 20, 30, 10, no one. Uh, and I thought that I didn't, I never saw that coming. And some people specifically said 60s, like 60s were, were their favorite gener their favorite age. And I think primarily because most people's children were out of the house by then. So it was a chance to have independent interests and concerns outside of the house that weren't related to needing to take care of living, breathing things inside of their house. Um, a lot of them had retired, so they had a bit more free time, or they just got to a place where they were either financially or emotionally comfortable enough to actually choose the things they wanted to do. And especially at a certain generation, like that, again, just wasn't an option. And that's not quite something I can even fully wrap my head around because I can't imagine not having any freedom over my choice of how I spend my time. So that I think was a big thing of like, they got to an age where they cared less about what people thought about them. They had a little bit more freedom in their schedule and they got to try new things. So, and I think most people, we talked about disability a lot in the book, just because I think we live in a really ableist culture that assumes most people don't experience disability until they're like 80s and 90s. And then we just write people off. But, you know, disabilities in all different forms pop up way earlier than 40s and 60s. So I think being appreciative of, you know, things in your body, allowing you to be mobile, to go out, to be independent, to be aware of that and to be grateful of that at all times is a really important thing. And I took that away from this, this book too. What were some of the opinions from the women you featured in the book as far as the toll that some of our po policies and political ideologies may have on our ability as a country to pursue life to our individual fullest and freest? And I'm more concerned here about women, people of color, indigenous people. Are we moving backwards in some ways? I think there were a lot of people who feared a backward slide for sure. But, you know, the interesting thing is that answer really differed based on someone's racial identity. I think people who have lived through far worse upheaval and turmoil in terms of oppression, namely women of color in the book, spoke about like 
this is not new. This is something we've always been fighting. And we've been aware of how easily things in this country can shift and not for the better. So having those voices in the book to kind of say like, yeah, I feel hopeful, but I'm also aware of how tenuous it always is. And so that was really important to me because I think that their hope hinged not on political progress so much as younger people rediscovering cultural connections. Like that was really powerful to me, especially in talking with indigenous women, talking with Asian women, talking with black women to say like younger cultures are coming back to their families, coming back to their roots, rediscovering, you know, what is their ancestral connection to their community. And that's something that wasn't like as cool or as popular as it is right now. And we're having this moment of a lot of people really reclaiming and reconnecting with their heritage. And I think that was something people felt really, really hopeful about. Um, But when it came to political hopefulness and like rights and like Supreme Court stuff, I don't think anybody felt hopeful about that. But there was definitely a difference in the degree of shock about that. I think white women in particular were a lot more shocked and angered. And I think women of color were like, yeah, we've we've been worried about this for a long time. We've, we've been warning you, this is not new. So, you know, that I think that is something we see echoed in social media as well in all ages. So much more to discuss, but I have to let you go. I'm really mm-hmm. honored to have you on the show again, Grace. And I can't wait to share this book with the audience, with my girlfriends. And like I said, I'm such a fan of your first book, In the Company of Women, sitting proudly on my coffee table in our living room. And now I look forward to finding inspiration and wisdom from your newest book, Collective Wisdom. Absolutely. I, th- I hope this book will inspire at least a few people to connect with people in their community, whether even in their own family, to just talk to aunts and grandmothers and elders and aunts, you know, just just more than you already have and actually include them in your life. Don't I think sometimes that connection kind of becomes like a little patronizing of like, oh, we'll take you out once in a while. But like, no, have have debates, have like real conversations, talk about politics, talk about things that scare you like Everybody has an opinion and and they have a perspective that we could so benefit from. And I think we have perspective to offer as well. So I hope that inspires at least a few people. It reminds me of a quote by Adam Grant. Uh, He's the Wharton School psychologist, New York Times bestselling author. And he says, uh, the clearest sign of intellectual chemistry is not agreeing with someone. It's enjoying your disagreements with them. Harmony is the pleasing arrangement of different tones, voices, or instruments, not the combination of identical sounds. Creative tension makes beautiful music. And your book, Collective Wisdom, is a work of art. Grace Bonnie, thank you again and wishing you continued success in 2022. Thank you. Thanks so much to Grace Bonnie for joining us. Be sure to stick around for our Friday episode of Ask Farnoosh. New questions that have arrived in all of the ways through text message, Instagram, YouTube, my email. I have many ways for you and I to connect. All the more likely that your question will get answered. So be sure to circle back here on Friday and keep this good momentum going. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. Money.